Who are the ad watchers? We are attorneys at the National Advertising Division of BBB National Programs, a team with 50 years of experience investigating and resolving disputes over the accuracy of national advertising campaigns. We don't just take ads at face value, we put them to the test. Why? Because advertising law can be simple, but it's the execution that's hard. Annie, I hate to admit it, but I think there are some misperceptions and misunderstandings and misconceptions about what NAD does and some of our policies and procedures. Have you noticed this? Once in a while, right? People just may not understand the rules or even need some fine tuning in certain areas. Well, I mean, this is an open forum, right? Ad Watchers is a forum of information and learning, you know, and it's just you, me, and the universe of potential listeners on YouTube or whatever other platform. So I thought maybe we would set the record straight on some of this stuff, clear the air a little bit, but do it in kind of um, in a way that's maybe uh, hopefully a little less salty. So we're going to do our top 10 list of the most common misunderstandings that new participants and not so new participants tend to have about NAD and the NAD challenge process. How does that sound, Annie? I think that sounds great. And it might not be as fun as David Letterman's top 10 list from Sioux City, Iowa. And we're broadcasting from seven times square. It's okay. But yes, let's do it. Yeah, I've never been to Sioux City, Iowa. And no disrespect to any of our listeners who are in Sioux City, Iowa. But I think our top 10 list coming from our offices in Times Square in New York City, I think it's going to be on par. Yeah, let's try. Let's jump right into it, right? Okay. So number 10, number 10 or number one, depending on how you look at it. These are not in any order of priority or importance. The number one source of confusion that participants in NAD proceedings often have is what exactly... NAD is reviewing, the scope of our review. So to begin at the beginning, often a challenge is submitted to NAD. And what is being challenged is just an advertisement generally. But, you know, we are the National Advertising Division. Of course, we look at the truth and accuracy of national advertising. But advertising, of course, really is about the messages that are being conveyed to consumers And, you know, an advertisement will have a lot of messages often that are being conveyed. Some of those messages will be true. Some of those messages will be false. Some of those messages may be expressly made. Some of those messages may be made implied claims through the context of the advertisement. So the first thing that a challenger to the entity proceeding needs to know is that you're challenging the messages that are being conveyed by an advertisement, which means that you need to identify in your challenge those particular messages or claims, both express and implied, that you are arguing are false or unsupported. It's not enough just to say, dear NAD, look at this television commercial. It's false. It's not supported. Please tell the advertiser to stop. It's not enough to tell NAD, NAD, here's this advertiser's website. 
look at all these comparative claims. You know, they're all false. We're challenging all the claims on this website. You need to be more specific with what you're challenging because that's what NED is going to review. NED is going to review the truth, accuracy, and support for the particular claims that are being identified by the challenger. Now, that does not mean, of course, that you as a challenger need to list every iteration of a claim. If the claim is, you know, a number one sales claim, number one in sales, if NAD recommends discontinuance of the number one in sales claim, that same recommendation is going to apply to a claim like the leader in sales. So specificity with claims, but not to the point where you need to list every single iteration of the claim as it appears across all of the advertisers advertising. I'm going to throw a bonus in already, even though we're only at the first one, to cheat, to cheat the list. And we're going to cheat this list a lot. The second thing I want to say is, on the other side of the coin, for the advertiser, discontinuance of an advertisement is not going to resolve a challenge to a claim. To resolve a challenge to a claim, an advertiser can elect to permanently discontinue the claim. That means an agreement to permanently discontinue the claim in not just current advertising, but in future advertising as well. Great points, Dan. Well, number nine on this list is that we don't create rules and regulations. We try to harmonize our decisions with any relevant regulatory authority, right? And so in terms of who creates the rules of advertising claim substantiation, it's the FTC, right? In uh, section uh, 5A of, of, of the FTC Act. So NAD and regulatory authorities have different objectives when reviewing ad claims and apply different legal standards. So if there's an applicable regulation or agency action that relates directly to a product or a claim, we will follow it. But we have jurisdiction over challenges of advertisements that have been subject to review uh, by a federal agency, unless those claims are, quote unquote, where the language is mandated or expressly approved by federal law or regulation. So for example, like the warnings on a, a product label, right? We're not going to opine on that. For example, in one case relating to Purdue chicken, we said that we were not required to defer to the USDA's food safety and inspection service where the label was not mandated and approved by regulation, but really was part of an administrative review by the FSIS. Our decisions also inform regulatory guidance. So from time to time, the FTC is uh, looking for comments on specific guidance, most recently with the endorsements and testimonials guides and the green guides, and we will provide our comments. And we've had a number of cases in those areas, particularly in the green space. We also fill in gaps in terms of uh, regulatory uh, efforts of FTC or the states. And sometimes we opine on areas before regulators can get to them. For example, in native advertising, when we had a number of cases several years back, and we provided some useful guidance in that space. 
And then we also address issues that regulators don't typically look at, right? For example, puffery or, or denigration, right? Denigration, we've, we have a number of cases in that space where we've provided really helpful guidance. And those are really just not issues re- regulators will will typically look at, you know, because their resources are very limited and they have different uh, priorities. Again, we're not speaking for those agencies because we're not those agencies. And that also means that we don't have the enforcement power of those agencies. That's a common misconception for parties who are not really familiar with the, with the NAD, you know, where they will ask us to maybe like particularly in the realm of, of compliance to like issue an order requiring the advertiser to comply with our recommendation. Well, this is voluntary self-regulation. Emphasis on the voluntary. We can't compel advertisers to issue corrective advertising or, you know, we can't issue an order that stops claims that we determine to be deceptive or, or misleading. We certainly, you know, can't exercise other powers that the FTC may have, such as banning a company or an individual from certain marketing activities or seeking financial remedies. That's not to say, of course, that an NAD recommendation is without teeth, because although we're not the FTC, we share a similar mission with the FTC of consumer protection, of seeking fair competition in the marketplace. And, you know, NAD, consistent with that shared objective, follows FTC guidelines in its analysis of claims. So we have a very close relationship with the FTC, although we are not ourselves the FTC or have their enforcement powers. Through that relationship with the FTC, however, you know, we can leverage some of those FTC's powers, or at least bring the matter to the FTC's attention where they can exert their enforcement powers should they choose to do so. So in those circumstances where an advertiser decides not to follow an NAD recommendation, that matter will be referred to the FTC and it will be noticed and reviewed by the FTC, they will pay attention to it. Uh, typically, you know, we will speak with the FTC directly about the matters that we refer to them. So the point here is, listen, we're not the FTC, but we do have a really close relationship with the FTC, which although we don't have FTC's enforcement powers, an advertiser that is not comply with any of these recommendations is risking uh, making themselves potentially subject to FTC review and the exercise by the FTC of their enforcement powers over the advertiser's advertising. Great points, Dan. Uh, I wanted to mention something that I, I forgot to include earlier, which is that 
sometimes we also look at at standards that are not set by regulators, but by uh, expert organizations, right? Like industry-led organizations. So for example, the ASTM Guide to Sensory Claim Substantiation. And so we will look at those in specific areas. There's often consensus by the parties that that's the standard, but, but we're also not necessarily bound by an industry standard. So the next point I wanted to make is about the submission of an advertiser's substantiation in the first instance. So sometimes advertisers submit part of their substantiation in their first response and then part of it in the final response. That's not a great idea. And and the reason is because a challenger can expedite the proceeding. It doesn't happen very often, but it can happen. What does that mean? That means that the challenger waives its right to a reply. So if you have not submitted all of your evidence in the first response, you are basically out of luck. The record is closed and we have to, you know, when we're writing the decision, we go by whatever was submitted in the advertiser's first response. So very important to submit everything you have in the first response. Another point that I want to make is about confidentiality. Use it sparingly. Advertisers, but not challengers, have the right uh, to submit confidential information to us. You certainly are entitled to do so. You have to explain why the evidence is confidential. But remember that you also have to provide separately a summary of that confidential information. And it should be as detailed as possible. And this is a very often a sticking point, right? The, the challenger will get the summary and say, this is not enough, right? This, we, we don't know, have enough information about the test methodology. Here's a list of questions we have. And they are free to provide those questions and we will send that along to the advertiser. And as Dan noted, this is a voluntary process. We cannot compel the advertiser to provide additional information, but we certainly encourage them to do so as much as possible. The reason being that it's important for the challenger to be able to provide a meaningful critique of the evidence. It also helps us when we're writing the decision, right? The more information we have, the more informed our decision can be. I also want to point out section uh, 2.1 G3 of the procedures. And we say there that NAD determines if uh, the evidence submitted is uh, sufficiently complete to permit an expert evaluation. And if a party submits incomplete data that they then want to supplement and they had that data in their possession, then we may decline to accept that data. So be mindful of that when you are trying to determine uh, what to provide and what not to provide. Yeah, those are good. Those are great points. I mean, you know, we see this sort of gamesmanship sometimes, this strategy where if you're in a standard track proceeding, the advertiser may say, well, we'll provide some substantiation here on our reply. And then the challenger gets to respond to that. But then we get the final reply. So, and the challenger doesn't have a third round of reply. So we'll just, we'll go ahead and we'll save some of our, our support, like our really good arguments till that, till that last reply. Well, as Annie said, that can backfire on you. Because if you only offer some 
sort of mediocre substantiation on your first reply because you're withholding some, the challenger can turn around and expedite it. And then that closes the record. And then you're going to be kind of stuck with those sort of less than uh, optimal arguments and support that you provided. And then also, as Annie said, even if the challenge is not expedited, if support is provided in that last response, NED always has the option of requesting sort of additional information and opening it up for another round. So you may not sort of gain the benefit that you thought you might achieve. And then also, since Andy, we're, you're looking at some of the policies and procedures, and also say that with respect to confidential information, keep in mind that our policies and procedures do provide in uh, 2.1 G4F that failure of an advertiser to provide a comprehensive summary of, of confidential information will be considered significant grounds for a challenger appeal. And so that's also something to, to keep in mind. While we're on the topic of substantiation, I'm going to turn it to number five on our list. And that is evidence that is offered in the form of like studies, reports, you know, often with respect to health claims, you know, competent and reliable scientific evidence being the standard. Sometimes we will get an advertiser, we'll have an advertiser provide a whole bunch of studies to support their claim. And you look at these and you're like, wow, there's a lot of studies here. This must be some support. Well, the key takeaway for this point is that it's quality, not quantity. That is what's important. If you provide 10 studies to support your claim, but each one of them are deficient, you're not probably going to be able to cobble them together to sort of like compensate for each one's deficiencies. You know, it's not a jigsaw puzzle. Where it's like, well, this one is statistically significant, but there's no consumer meaningful benefit. And this one is... It has a consumer meaningful benefit, but it's not statistically significant. So you put these two together and it's like Voltron and it creates like the super substantiation that's going to support our claim. It doesn't doesn't work that way. We're looking for quality studies, quality support, quality, not quantity is the key. Also, oftentimes with studies, they come with expert declarations. Expert declarations can be really useful to NAD, especially when, when we're looking at you know, really complex technical matters. Keep in mind, though, that an expert declaration is not going to compensate for the absence of the support that he's providing his opinion about or her opinion about. NAD is going to need to see those studies the expert is speaking about. We can't just take the expert's word for it. And also, of course, nor does the challenger want to take the expert's word for it. They're also going to want to see those studies and have a chance to, to review them, to evaluate the substantiation for themselves. So that's number five on our list. Yeah, great points. And I would add, too, that it's also important for parties to consult with the FTC's 
new health claims guidance. They're, they're very important updates there that they really need to take into account. Uh, so the next one on the list, I guess we're at number four now. Oftentimes we will, a party will come to us, an advertiser will say, well, everyone else is, is doing this, right? Like, I mean, why can't we? Or, or something along those lines, right? That didn't work in fifth grade. And that's just really not going to work at NAD. I often hear this, you know, when, when there's a monitoring case. So part of our public interest mission, we bring our own cases. Uh, and a party will often say, well, I can't believe you picked us. Like, what about X company? When it comes to monitoring cases specifically, then we are not picking on a company. Uh, it's just, we will find advertising that we think needs to be reviewed. We are certainly not picking on a company when, when we are uh, bringing a monitoring case. And we have very limited resources, so we can only do so much. But also, when there is a challenge, an advertiser sometimes will provide evidence of the challenger's shortcoming. So they'll say, oh, I can't believe, you know, they're challenging this, but look at their advertising, right? And so they will provide excerpts of their advertising and say that, you know, they're, they're a bad player. They're doing it way worse than we are. And that's not before us, right? So when we have a challenge, whether it's a challenge or a monitoring case, we just look at the claims and the advertising that is before us, right? So we will not, if there's a challenge and an advertiser critiques the challenger's advertising on, you know, similar claims, we're not going to include that as part of the decision. And we tell the advertiser separately that they can bring their own challenge, but that's not part of our review. So remember, you have to focus on the claims at issue and whether explaining to us whether you have a reasonable basis for the claims. But the fact that there are similar claims in the marketplace does not mean that you can make unsupported claims about your product. The rules are the rules and our review is the same. At the core of it, it's all about making sure that companies know that they will be treated fairly and we make sure that we're trying to create a, a level playing field. But remember, everyone else is doing it is not a good defense. Make sure that you have proper substantiation uh, for your claims before you make them. Yeah, and it doesn't matter the size of the company. Uh, all in-house counsel who work with like folks on the marketing side have been in that situation where you may provide guidance to the marketing team saying like, we can't say that. We're not going to say that. We need to change that. And they come back and they say, well, look at this. Look at our competitor. They're doing that exact same thing that you told us not to do. With the implication being either A, you're being too conservative. B, maybe you don't know what you're talking about. or And or three, like you're holding the company back from success. Well, the response to that is not to say, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to lower the bar. Like, all right, we'll, we'll play down to that level. And then it just becomes a race to the bottom. You know, that's, that's contrary to the very notion of what advertising self-regulation is all about. Advertising self-regulation is about companies holding each other to high standards 
to ensure fair competition and to protect consumers. You know, bring a challenge to NAD. Don't lower the bar to that competitor. Make sure the competitor plays up to the standards that the industry has set for itself. On that topic of, you know, in-house counsel being too conservative, as alleged often by folks on the marketing side, you know, that would bring me into when in doubt about whether a claim might convey a message that is misleading or not, do play a conservative, you know, dial it back. I, I think it's important to not treat compliance with advertising law as like complying with the speed limit. Like we all know that oh, the speed limit posted is 55, but you, know, you say, you said, well, as long as you stay under 65, we'll be okay. Don't think of your advertising compliance in that same way. Either your, your claims are supported or they're not. It's not like only the most egregious, egregiously unsupported claims are a problem. No, I mean, if your claim, if you don't have the support for that claim, if your advertising is conveying a message that you can't support, you're subjecting yourselves to, you know, at a minimum, an NAD challenge. And often I think the consequences of that are going to be greater than whatever sort of marginal benefit, if any, would be achieved by stretching your claims beyond what your substantiation can support. You know, I think that all advertising, advertising can be impactful. It can be persuasive and still comply with truth and advertising principles. If it can't, then probably the problem is either your product or your advertising agency or your marketers. So again, kind of a similar point, right? Don't stretch beyond where you need to go. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's especially important when we're talking about quantified claims, right? I mean, a lot of time, right, like a two times better, five times stronger, you either have the evidence to support it or you don't. And of course, those are the claims that companies want to make. But remember, the stronger the claim, the stronger the support that you need. Yeah. And five times better. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's a little punchier, a little shorter, takes up less real estate in your advertising space. But, you know, that's a pretty broad claim there. So again, like that's one where you say like, all right, like we have to dial this back a little bit. Exactly. So next on the list is meetings with the NAD. They're not part of the record. So sometimes a party will say, oh, well, you know, we said something at the meeting, right? We, we clarified something and that wasn't mentioned, right, in the decision. Well, the record before NED is the submission, right? And so the meeting is not the place to make new arguments or present new evidence, right? The record is closed after the advertiser presents their final response, right? The meetings come after all the submissions are in. Make sure that whatever evidence you have and whatever arguments you're making are in the papers, 
right? And the meetings really, you know, it's an opportunity for NAD to obviously better understand the evidence, ask questions they have, but also FaceTime with NAD for the, for the parties. And it's especially important for new participants to be able to, you know, I guess, get more comfortable with the whole process, but just be mindful, right? That your arguments and all the evidence has to already be in the record. So remember, the meetings are an opportunity to clarify points that you've already made in your papers and to explain the evidence or critiques of the evidence, but not a place to introduce things that are not already in the record. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, another thing that happens a lot is party might say, Dan, Annie, listen, we want to do the right thing. Like we want to comply or we want to make sure that there's no issues with this advertising, these claims that we're going to make. So here's the deal. Like we want to say this in our advertising. Is NAD good with that? Is that going to be fine? We can't tell you that. Okay. Like we don't pre-approve ads. We don't pre-approve claims. There's no like certificate that we issue that says this claim has been found to be truthful and supported by NAD. And we don't do that. I mean, there's obvious reasons why we don't. The first is, of course, that a claim may have, may convey different messages depending on the context of the advertising in which it's placed. Annie, she mentioned like five times better claim. Well, a five times better claim in an advertisement that, you know, is focusing on something like uh, speed or something, that could be perceived by a consumer as that five times better refers to this product being five times faster than the competition. In another context, five times better, there might be other performance attributes that are in that advertisement that consumers could perceive the five times better claim as, as referring to those attributes. Now, maybe the five times faster message is true and supported, but in this other context, maybe it's not. So NAD cannot give sort of a blanket approval for a claim. It's now on the compliance side, you know, likewise, our recommendations will not recommend something like discontinue or modify your advertising or your claim to say this exact thing. We're not going to write marketing copy for advertisers, nor do advertisers want us to, I think, most of the time. What our decision should do, though, is point advertisers in a pretty clear direction about what was lacking with the claim that was challenged and which NAD recommended be discontinued or modified. If the claim is perhaps broader than the support that was present, then the decision should make that clear, that that claim needs to be better tailored, made limited to fit the particular support that the advertiser has. Our decisions may make clear that there needs to be a disclosure of a material limitation um, that applies to a claim, or a disclosure needs to be made more clear and conspicuous. But how the advertiser executes that to achieve that is the advertiser's decision and obligation. 
it's not something that NAD spells out. Great points, Dan. So we have reached the end. Drum roll. Number one, and not again in any particular order, is that the NAD decision, right, is not the end of the story. There is a compliance review very often. And so the challenger is, of course, looking to see that the advertiser is actually complying with our recommendations. And so they will submit a letter to us. The compliance proceeding operates in a very different way than a challenge. So the challenger will provide the letter, point out the ads that aren't compliant, that they feel are not compliant. And then they are essentially out of the process, right? So what happens is we will review the letter to see that, in fact, the claims that they are identifying are, in fact, appropriate for review in a compliance proceeding. And if they are, then we will go ahead and open the proceeding. And then discussions are between NAD and the advertiser. The advertiser will have to provide a response and we will go back and forth to ask about uh, additional advertising. And what we've done actually more recently, not a change to the procedures, but sort of informal change to the process is ask them to complete a compliance plan in which they lay out the changes that they have made. So we get a more comprehensive view of what's been done, what's in the works and what hasn't yet been done. And so that's a very important part of our review. No new evidence can be submitted on compliance. So sometimes an advertiser will come to us and say, look, we now have this study that supports the claim uh, that we were supposed to discontinue. We can't review that in a compliance proceeding. An advertiser can petition to reopen the case and that will be reviewed. If the petition is granted, then the compliance review is either closed completely or only in part, only as to the new evidence relating to that particular claim. So we've had that where it's we can still go ahead with the other claims that are not a part of this, you know, sort of implicated by this new evidence. So those are some points to keep in mind with respect to uh, compliance. So that does it. That completes the list. That completes this episode of Ad Watchers. Annie, I think this was the longest episode we've had for season three. Yes. But, you know, I think it was worth it. Like, I feel I feel good. I feel better to get some of this stuff off my chest, sort of set the record straight. So thanks to everyone for sticking with us. We'll be back again in a couple weeks, and we'll talk to you then. See you later. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Ad Watchers. Be sure to check out our previous episodes at accountabilitystudio.org, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to get notified about our next episode. Until then, leave us a review and let us know what you'd like to hear us discuss later this season. Mm-hmm.